Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories? This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. Connie Liddell is a force of nature. She is an enthusiasm for life that is contagious and an advocacy approach that will get you thinking about important topics in the world of disability. At 12 months of age, Carney was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy. Her parents were told that she would never be able to walk and that she would not live past her teens. Defying the odds, Carney competed at two Paralympic Games, 1996 and 2000, winning bronze in the women's 50 metre freestyle in the Atlanta Games and bronze in the women's 4 by 50 metre relay in the Sydney Games. But we didn't actually dive into her experience as an elite athlete in this conversation. Instead, we talked about life as a single parent, the judgment that she combats being a single parent in a wheelchair, and her drive to educate others about the importance of inclusion. We also dive into the confronting, but the very important topic of violence towards people with disabilities. The research into this field is limited, but the rates are alarming. Carney's energy, passion and focus are felt in this conversation. It's one that all of us need to be joining in more. Get ready to laugh and even shed a tear as you hear from the powerhouse that is Carney Liddell. Carney, welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me. It's great to be hanging out with you. Now, I understand you are a rocky girl. You're from Rockhampton. Yeah. I love how you start with that. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I am. I'm born and bred <clears throat> in Rockhampton and... Um, I feel like everyone was born in Rockhampton. I've got I this do theory. Too. You don't have to go too far. No. When you run into someone from Rockhampton. Well, I've been a speaker for 20 years now since Sydney 2000 games. So I've travelled the world speaking. And one of my easiest jokes, it's not even a joke. I just say that I am from Rockhampton. It makes people laugh. <laughs> but then I say, who else in the crowd is from Rockhampton? And there's always one person that puts their hand up. And that's never failed me. In 20 years, and I always say that even though it's only one person, there's always three in the crowd. So you times it by three. Because <laughs> <laughs> Does that mean the other two don't want to admit? No, from and they always come up to me afterwards <laughs> and they're like, oh, we're also from Rocky, but we didn't want to put our hand up. <laughs> it's just sort of like the same rule I say when you ring up a restaurant and say, how many steps do you have? When you're like, I'm in a wheelchair. Oh, yeah, so yeah. I always ring and say, how many steps do you have? which always throws people and they think they're going to get in trouble for saying they have got steps. <laughs> like the so health I, regulation. Yeah, I wish, like there was, I wish there was something yes. regulating steps, yeah. but there's not. And I always say, t- if an able-bodied person tells you there's one step, he times it by three. There's three. Yeah, so right. So it's Rockhampton and step rule times by three. Okay. <laughs> Somehow correlated. Yeah, I don't know how. <laughs> there's a joke in there. Yeah. Well, how did growing up in Rocky, and, you know, we were talking about it before, there is something in the water of being part of, you know, central Queensland and a lot of people identify. How did uh, growing up there kind of shape who you are? Uh, I think the older you get, your you, hindsight always, you appreciate your childhood more and more, or the opposite. I'm a social worker, so sometimes that is the opposite. You don't appreciate your childhood and you want to spend the rest of your life, you know, investigating into why you are the way you are. I'm very appreciative of my childhood now. I probably wasn't. I went from Rockhampton to the Gold Coast to Bond University. So I literally went from, you know, a very small country, salt of the earth, 
you know, beef capital of Australia to the only private university in Australia back then. There was no hex, and it was really and truly the most wealthy children went to Bond University. I was there on a scholarship. So I, I think that really um, influenced uh, me to be embarrassed about my my background of being from Rockhampton. You know, I went to my first Bond Uni party with a pack of uh, six six pack of Han Premium Light <laughs> beer because <laughs> I was still an athlete, so I was still drinking light beer, and, and nobody there drank beer. And I also had a bottle of rum with me because you know in Rockhampton <laughs> that's how sh- we call it sugarcane champagne. Yeah, and everyone there had Verve, and I'd never heard of. Verve before or any kind of champagne. So that really um, impacted me to really make sure that I I spoke a certain way and I, and I didn't reference uh, Rockhampton at all when I was at uni. And I think now I've gone complete opposite. Now I don't, I think I start every sentence with, I'm from Rockhampton because I'm really <laughs> proud of it um, because I'm proud that I'm laid back and... And I love people, I respect people, and I treat people, uh, you know, with the time and respect they deserve. And that's a very country way. It is absolutely a very country way. Um, but it's interesting how that juxtaposition of the, yeah, the, the, those two worlds would have come. Yeah. And I'm not saying Bond University. You. I actually <clears> love, <throat> I went to, did masters at somewhere else. Um, and I tell you what, again, I appreciated Bond <laughs> because it was, even though it was that way inclined, and money doesn't make you unkind. Um, at all. It was just a different lifestyle they had to what my lifestyle was. And I certainly had a beautiful experience at Bond. And I was very looked after. But Rockhampton gave me that feeling of I was just so supported in Rocky. Um, I never felt like a burden having a disability. If I wanted to play sport of any kind, whether it was nippers at Emu Park or netball at school, nobody associated me with risk. And risk, I think, has disabled us more than anything in this country. When you have a disability, everyone thinks that we are riskier to do anything with, whether it's employers or let us into your coffee shop. Whereas in Rocky, I don't know what it was about that place, but they were really good with disability and they were really good with just throwing me in and figuring it out. Even when I injured myself, it, it didn't really matter. I wonder if it's they always see the person first or I know their family or I know who they're from or yeah, I know mate, their mum and dad. And I so. think it's a bit more rough, rough and tumble, you know. That's the kind of upbringing that I, that I hope my son has now. I don't want him to be wrapped in cotton wool and, and I certainly want him to be able to try things and fail and fall because that's, <laughs> that's life. It is life and it's, it's, it's how we learn and you've got to be able to, I think it's that risk appetite to be able to jump into that. Yeah. Now, you have a great um, TEDx talk that you did at uh, oh, South, South Brisbane, um, which I, would, I will definitely put the links in so people can have a look at it. But you talk about this concept where people say that they the term, I don't mind whether I have a boy or a girl if they're pregnant or you're about to have a baby. I just hope that I have a healthy baby. Mm-hmm. And and you had this realisation where you were even kind of um, contemplating that and that was you know, part of the vernacular until you realised that that you were that baby yep. that, that wasn't born healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, can you, yeah, I guess tell the story of... of you know what what you were born with what what those disabilities were yeah i was born with a muscle wasting disease and back then they diagnosed me with spinal muscular atrophy which um you know with that kind of diagnosis of any neuromuscular wasting disease it's never a good prognosis especially in the late 70s when i was born and diagnosed with it so 
my poor darling parents were told the really um, black and white textbook medical definition of my disease, which was that I would progressively get worse and that um, I would eventually end up in a wheelchair because I wouldn't be able to walk if I walked at all. Uh, From there, I would end up in an electric wheelchair, so a joystick-type contraption because my arms would deteriorate with the condition and then from there it would... would, um, Internally, I would eternally, internally waste. So whatever's a muscle, so you get lungs, heart, mm. and I would die of pneumonia is typically what people die of with this disease. Um, and back then it was in your teenage years that you would die. And because I was born floppy, which was such a r- rare thing to be born floppy with muscle wasting disease, you usually die really quickly. So I was born floppy, which was very strange because people with SMA aren't typically born that floppy and that, uh, I guess, obviously disabled. Usually they get diagnosed a few years later when they start to not walk and things like that. So I was very unwell and straight away uh, very obviously um, disfigured, I suppose, is the right... I don't really know the right word, but that's what I think. I, was, I, looked, a bit, I looked a bit odd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I guess for... I'm now 39 and I still walk... I only use um, the wheelchair I'm sitting in now for longer distances, or I'd say for parking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. Um, I have no idea how you guys get a park <laughs> at Christmas. I always feel very sorry for you all. <laughs> and I'm just drive in and, and get a park straight away. Oh, when I, when I can't get a park, I don't know what to do. <laughs> Actually, I parked in a pram spot just recently and somebody got up me. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> um, Go back to your own park. Yeah, but I... I think I was about early 30s when everyone was having children around me and I, I, I fully understand, and I'm a mother now, so I really understand that you want the best for your child. Um, there's no doubt about that. I had all the genetic testing done um, for my disease and every other disease. I was certainly... We all do the best that we can to make sure that our children are, um, are well and happy, but I... I don't think we realise, and I certainly realise this from being a person living with a disability for 39 years, a Paralympian, so I've been around a lot of people with disabilities, and now I'm a social worker and NDIS ambassador for Queensland. So I've spent my whole life where it's sort of minority um, is somebody with, is able-bodied, because most of my friends have a disability, because that's the life that I've led. So I guess for me, I'm very aware of the stats that, 20% of Australians have a disability and that will never change. In fact, it's on the increase. The reason it's on the increase is because um, we can now keep premature babies alive and it's on the increase because we've got an ageing population. So with all the things that us humans try and control, and we're really good at that, aren't we, Mm. humans? Oh, absolutely. We think we can control everything and we don't learn from cyclones and floods and fires it's out of and disability <laughs> and car accidents. We don't learn that we'd have no control over anything. We keep trying desperately to control everything. And one thing I know is that you can do everything right, in inverted commas, through a pregnancy like my mother did, and you still have an unhealthy baby. And I guess the words that we associate with disability are so damaging for everything. 
And it's not just about the fact that we say constantly, all I want to have is a healthy baby, because you don't think about what that means mm. when that mother doesn't have one. And it is just the consciousness of it. Like, yeah. we don't often think, well, what, is, yeah, what does that actually mean? What's the opposite of that? What, what is, is the opposite of that? Does that mean I'm devastated? Does that mean I'm, there's no and joy? And then no one else or, to do about it. No. And the tools, and the thing is too is that, all we want to have is a healthy baby. If you'd switch that around and reverse, it means I don't want. But you've got a 20% chance of that happening. And even worse, let's face it, a lot worse things in disability, and that is death. Mm. It's a lot of, it's, pregnancy is really risky. Really and it's risky. really scary as a mother. And I don't think we equip people for that diagnosis or for that life very well. And that's why there is so much grief and trauma. Uh, my mother probably still has probably trauma and grief from that diagnosis period and seeing her child sign well and having to go mm. through that and then constant everywhere she went had to fight for me to do anything, you know, go to school, go to kindy, uh, walk, do rehabilitation, do exercise when every single person with a degree told her not to, you know, yeah. make me comfortable, put me in a home. So it's just constant trauma and avalanche of negativity. When and questioning, you... I can only imagine. Yeah, and I just think it's really interesting now that we live in this society where we're overloaded with Instagrammers and bloggers and podcasters telling us to be positive and um, what you put out to the world will come true and this mindfulness. But we don't seem to associate that for people with disabilities. <laughs> you know, we constantly throw negativity at them and then say, oh, you poor thing. Oh, I feel so sorry for you. Oh, you had an unhealthy baby. And everywhere I go, people are always saying to me, oh, you poor thing, oh, you must be so hard. You know, imagine if everywhere you went, literally everywhere you went. You start to believe it. People say to you, oh, you poor thing, gosh, how do you do it? Do you get the other side where it's also, you're such an inspiration? Oh, oh, that's the worst. (laughs) (laughs) That's even worse. They high-five me for getting Vegemite at Coles. Or buying a red wine at the Storybridge Hotel, you know, like that is the days I drop my kids off and they have school uniforms and shoes on. And I high five myself for that. <laughs> you know what? And I'd be happy to be a high five yeah. for that. <laughs> but yeah, look, the fact that they're high fiving me and they have absolutely no idea what yeah. I've done, just yeah. high five me for being out. Again, I know that you're trying to be nice, but just think about what you're doing. Mm. You're high fiving me for just being out. You know, I'm a successful businesswoman, mother, friend. You know, there's a lot of things, Paralympian in my life, that I'm happy to be high-fived about. I'm not happy to be high-fived you for buying clothes at Maya. Yes, <laughs> you know, yeah. That's not, to me, inspirational. Mm-hmm. And if you think that is, then you're diminishing every single person with disabilities' life and you're just making us um, lesser than all the time. We're always lesser than. And mm-hmm. that's why I did that TED Talk. It was risky because I, I thought, oh, gosh, I hope people don't get this get this mixed up. But all I was saying is that really as parents, all we should want to have is a happy child. Because even if you have a disability, you can be happy. Because I know lots of able-bodied people that are unhappy. Yeah. And totally. I, and, I, <laughs> and people that um, commit suicide every day or every week, they don't all have disabilities. Mm-hmm. So we know that. <laughs> so we've got to stop th- we've got to stop labeling people with disabilities lives as being lesser than or crap because no wonder lots of my mates with disabilities, their self-esteem is in the toilet because that's what they're told everywhere they go. And the people that I know with disabilities are literally the happiest people I know. So happiness is a pursuit. 
Because, I mean, health is one of those. And what does that actually mean? What does that actually look like? We, well, no one knows. No one knows. <laughs> no. Well, now, and again, we're living in a society where there's so many conditions, again, on, on the rise. If you look at, I live in that world of health. So mm. therefore, you know, we've got all these autoimmune diseases that no one can even see on a scan. No one can see anywhere. And these poor people that are living with these conditions, invisible diseases, where no one can see them, they're probably in way more pain than I am. And, you know, I actually feel for them way more than mine because, you know, you can see mine. Yep. You can see mine and you can decide whether you want to be around me or not really quickly. And I'm offered off. I'm offered way too much help, <laughs> right? And I yes. think those people with invisible diseases are offered no help. Yep. So I just think we just have to be really careful with this idea of health, because I actually pride myself on being really healthy, and really well, and really strong, and I don't feel like. I am lesser than or weak, even though I guess I can't lift my arms above my head or I can't walk more than fifty meters. I I feel, and I and that's a that's a belief in me that I, I love feeling strong. Mm-hmm. So, is happiness a measure for you? It's something that you kind of are checking in for yourself around. Where's that? Where am I sitting on the dial around my own happiness? Or for yeah, the time. <laughs> yeah. Single in between it all. Yeah. Uh, look, I think, again, <laughs> we're all striving for this happiness and I don't think any of us really know what it is, mm. do we? No. I think sometimes we're happy. Like I look at my son sometimes when he's laughing and I know that is pure. That's pure happiness, right, when he's giggling or... And then the next minute he's throwing a tantrum, like <laughs> pulling my hair out, but I forget about that I was happy five minutes ago. I don't know. I, I, for me, am happiest when I feel um, well, when I'm fit, when I've put more time and energy into my health and my family and, and my relationships are going well and my family. I, I feel that's my measure of happiness. Um, I've lived a life where I've had to fight literally to walk that many times and I can't even count after various operations and after pregnancy that because I've lost that ability so many times now and to get it back and when you feel when you're feeling you know weak and totally dependent on others I, I don't like that feeling at all and I know that nothing else matters than to get that feeling of strength and dependence back I really like that feeling. Is that being part of that determination to get back to those points? Um, it's, it's really hard to qu- quantify or qualify what determin- determination is for me. I, I just know that I, and not everyone likes to walk, as in people, I know plenty of people with disabilities that have chosen, you know, it's easier in a chair because, you know, walking with a limp or a gait, you know, you look a certain way and you're probably a bit more prone to falling over and you're slow and you sweat and there are a lot of it's not the prettiest thing you've ever seen. I really like walking, probably because I like to dance. I lost the ability to walk when I was 17 for the first time. And I remember the thing that I wanted to do the most was go to Strutters and a dance. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a nightclub in Rockhampton. So I really like dancing and I really like the ability to be able to get up and down out of my chair, fill up my car with petrol. Um, all those things are ridiculously hard when you're in a wheelchair 24-7, I find, because I'm also weak as well, so I've also got those arm problems. So I guess a paraplegic doesn't have 
those issues. So I have to use a power assist wheelchair and... Um, so when you at 17 and you said that you kind of lost that ability to work, walk the first time, was that um, kind of a gradual... Did that go away gradually or was that No, I had an operation. Okay. I had a, my first reconstruction at 17. Mm-hmm. So, and reconstruction of... Oh, a knee. Okay. Yeah, so all my joints have been pretty much reconstructed. Um, I'm like the bionic woman. <laughs> <We> stitched back <laughs> together yeah, again. I really have, yeah. <laughs> and my knees were dislocating from a young age. Um, and no one really knew why. I guess everyone just thought it was because I was weak, you know, weak muscles, joints don't hold together. And I was just lucky that after my first Paralympics, I was exposed to all the best doctors, doctors and physios in the world. That's what happens when you're a Paralympian or an Olympian. And I found a doctor, a surgeon, um, that said, actually, no, it's just because your shin bone is out of line with your kneecap. When I say just, <laughs> that is, <right>. <laughs> <laughs> that is the that easiest <laughs> thing to put back in place. But that was the beginning of um, figuring out a bit more about the fact that I didn't have spinal muscular atrophy, but I didn't discover exactly what I had really until a couple of years ago, which was a really was actually very challenging. Um, it's like being told your name's not Carney Liddell, or you know you're not from Rockhampton. Your identity is unfortunately sometimes wrapped up in your disease and your disability. And so what? So it, the diagnosis changed? changed. Yeah. Wow. That would yeah. Be, um, yeah. I can imagine very different to get your head around as mm. much as actually understand. So what what was behind that that shift in the diagnosis? Well, because I was around so many people with spinal musculature, in fact, one of my best friends, uh, Simone, married somebody with spinal muscular atrophy. So being around him and being around other people, even though I definitely have muscle wasting disease, we all, we all look a certain way. We have certain characteristics and when you're around us, you, you'll sort of understand. But I wasn't... Pre- spinal muscular atrophy, you're missing a like a gene. So you're actually, you can have a blood test and, and then you can find out you're missing the SMN1 gene. And you just, you progressively go downhill. There's there's no way around that. It's definitely a disease progression. That wasn't happening for me. Like I would lose the ability to walk after a massive operation, but I'd get it back mm. with a ridiculous amount of exercise. And um, that's not supposed to happen. You're not supposed to, to just get it back. Mm-hmm. And... I don't know, there was just certain things happening I just knew. And then I really wanted to have kids when I was in my late 20s and, like, most women start to think about it. And because I wasn't, didn't have a genetic diagnosis and it wasn't showing up anywhere, I was just on this massive quest. It became like an obsession for me to get diagnosed because every uh, doctor, and these were international doctors because I am exposed again because I'm a speaker and I'm the ambassador for every disability organisation. <laughs> I was exposed to and I was really strategic about saying yes to certain speeches to get in front of certain doctors mm-hmm. to give them my, you know, file and go, figure it out, please. Uh, I also wanted to to do it for my brother who was also looking at having children and, um, and for my parents, you know, they never really had the answers as to why and mothers of children with disabilities, they always want to know why. Yes, yeah. They just do. They think it's because... Oh, look, and and they all have... Everyone has a theory. My mum had a couple of theories. Um, And I I just wanted to put those theories to rest for her um, so she could stop asking why, what did I do? Yeah. And so I was on this mission, um, which really took over my life, to be honest, for a 
fairly long time. I spent a lot of money and a lot of time trying to get diagnosed and I probably ruined a lot of relationships along the way because I refused to have kids until I figured it out. Not because I didn't want to have a child with a disability or a child that was unhealthy, because I didn't want to have a child with my condition, which is an interesting psychological twist. Mm. I, and, and this is my decision and my feeling around it is because I'd seen so many people with genetic diseases have children with their own conditions and I saw the impact that had on them uh, because you know why. <laughs> so as a mother with a child with a disability, then if you have right. that disability, you know why. You have a, it. A level it's genetic. of ownership on it. Well, that's just me. That, yeah. And I'm not saying I have plenty of friends that have had children <clears throat> with their own disease who are very happy and the child is happy. I just knew personally that I would really struggle with that mostly because I was tired of the fight for me. I didn't know if I could do it again. Okay. The exact same fight, mm -hmm. I still fight to fly and I fly every week. Right. I fight to get on a bloody at a ride at, at SeaWorld and DreamWorld. I fight for jobs. I fight for everything with a disability. You're always fighting to get a maxi taxi. You're fighting. Yeah. You know, like it's never ending. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. Um, and I didn't know if I, could, if I could do the identical fight again. Um, and also I didn't, I was more worried about my mum. You know, watch, watching her go through it again, the exact same. Uh, that, that was my feeling around it. And I, and I, I fully still understand that about it. Mm -hmm. um, and also I'm weak. Therefore, in terms of there are certain things I cannot do, I didn't know how I'd actually physically do it because mm -hmm. I didn't walk for three and a half years, the first three and a half years of my life, and then the rest of my life I was either carried or pushed around in a wheelchair. And my parents did six hours plus of exercise with me a day. And that's the reason why I am the like how strong and capable and pain, you know, I, I have quite a good um, – pain level uh, management plan now because of what my parents did very, very young. And I knew physically that I wouldn't be able to do that right. for yep. my child. So therefore I was like, well, who's going to do it? If that, if I can't do it, then are they going to have to do it? So, yeah, there was so a lot. This is a really complex. It was complex. Kind of web <laughs> of kind of nav navigating. Yeah, it was 10 years of, yeah. and it, like, I, I can look back now and I wish that I didn't do that to myself, but I did. And I wish I didn't destroy the relationships that I did. But that that was just my path. Mm -hmm. And I literally got diagnosed clinically uh, about a year or so before I had my son Kai, but not genetically. So I'm still not actually genetically diagnosed because there's, there's nobody in the world currently with my condition. But clinically, this very famous geneticist is... I think he's in his 80s now, took on my case and he took it on <laughs> with the vengeance and, yeah, he figured out that I was missing muscles. So, like, I'm actually missing my glutes completely. Right. I'm actually missing my hamstrings. So on MRI, they're not there. Right. And they never would be there no matter what I do. Like, doesn't matter how many... Well, I can't do... Because <laughs> <what? laughs> But I still, you know, I walk and I ride a bike <clears throat> and... Um, which blows many doctors' brains and minds and still does 
that I'm able to do those things. And I, I believe the reason I can do them is because I didn't know that I didn't have those muscles. So I just did it. So, so that's are there other muscles bliss. compensating <laughs> for that or? Yeah, well, the muscles that are there yeah. are crazy good. Yeah. But the beauty of not knowing that till I was 37 was that I did all those things not knowing and therefore I just tried them. Whereas if I knew it, if my parents had known that, maybe I wouldn't have got on a bike because oh, they would have said, well, you can't run a bike, you can't make glutes. Yeah. Well, I did triathlons. <laughs> yeah, and it's quite yeah. a, you know, you can almost go, well, yeah, the I can't or you can't yeah. would have been a straightforward thing to say. And that's why I'm very, um, I totally understand the power of the mind now more than ever because, wow, I lived 37 years not knowing and I tell you what, I think that, was just the biggest blessing for me not to know. Even as a swimmer, you know, I couldn't lift my arms above my head. But I didn't really ever associate that I couldn't do that really until I stopped swimming and I was doing various things, like trying to do my hair and I couldn't get my arms up. I didn't think when I was, you know, behind the blocks at Sydney 2000 Paralympics that I can't lift my arms above my head. That's really weird that I'm a swimmer. You know, I just, <laughs> I just swam and I just trained and obviously the body just figures it out. So were your arms going above your head while you were swimming? Only in the water can I do that, and it's one at a time. I can't do both, so I obviously can't do butterfly. But again, I didn't say to myself, oh, I can't do butterfly because I can't lift my arms above my head. Who knows I was what like, you I don't like butterfly. Who likes butterfly? <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I just think... What I love is, like, it's not only the power of the mind, but it's a connection between mind and body. And that's what I'm, you know, I think is really, really fascinating is you can think about it, it actually can have these physiological changes or it can impact on muscles and connections and what fires and what doesn't. And oh, yeah, totally. And I also think um, I'm so appreciative of my body. I think people look, and that's why it annoys me when people do look at disability in a negative light or that we're lesser than or not attractive or beautiful or, oh, geez, I'm so, <laughs> I'm constantly amazed by my own body yeah, um, and what it's capable to do. And now, I mean, specialists have always been intrigued by me. If I had a dollar for every time I heard a specialist say to me, they've never seen anyone like me, I would be very, very rich <laughs> and I wouldn't have to work anymore. But um, I now get it. I go, yeah, that is phenomenal that my body figured out how to walk considering I don't have those muscles and my gait doesn't match up and all those things are fascinating and but again I think I don't want to put too much thought into it either like I've I trained myself from a very young age never watched myself on camera walk and I never have I accidentally saw it once and I quickly turned away and that's not because I'm uh, embarrassed because I believe when I walk that I walk like you guys because that's all I've ever seen is you guys walk. Mm -hmm. That's why I have the confidence to walk into a room with a really weird gait and my friends and other people don't. They're really embarrassed about their walk. So, so I, was really I was really of conscious of that yeah. and it wasn't from reading a book. It was just something <clears> that I just, I just knew I had to do just to keep that confidence up. Yep. And, yeah, I don't get embarrassed about how I walk. I get a bit weird about going on a first date and having to, you know, <laughs> explain all that to someone. So I always get to the restaurant first and sit down <laughs> <laughs> and then slowly bring it up over entree. So, um, yeah, but that's probably more of a, 
I don't know, it's a female thing. We've all got our things, don't we? They were a bit, oh, totally. You know, <laughs> totally. We, we, we try and hide from our potential partners. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And when's the time that I bring that up or mention that? Yeah. When does that come into play? Yeah. Yeah, but we all absolutely have those things. Um, I love that concept, though, of just going, no, this is this is what it looks like for me or that, yeah, I'm not going to let my mind wasn't a capacity not to be able to not do it, just give it a go. Yeah, look, I ride a trike around. I've lived in Newfoundland for 16 years and I've ridden a trike. It's a really daggy bike that I guess old people ride that I've had for 10 years. I had a bike with training wheels for a while in my 20s (laughs) because I can't ride a normal bike. And I guess, you know, people say really weird things to me when they see me on the trike because I don't associate a trike with a disability. They just thought I was this crazy woman that had a trike because I had a dog and I put the dog in the back. I think that's <laughs> crazy. The crazy dog lady, which I am. Yes. Um, but I guess I just don't have any shame. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's just a real very – I'm very rarely embarrassed. So you've got this new diagnosis. Mm. Um, and then – so you now have a 17-month-old yes. son. A bundle of joy, plenty of... Uh, and you were only saying before you didn't get any sleep last night, so just like every <laughs> every, every mum with a 17-month-old. Yes. Um, talk me through then that decision because I can understand and could hear in your voice the apprehension of getting pregnant. Could my body even do this? Um, is this something that, yeah, is this a path that yeah. is going to be um, possible? Yeah, I didn't have a single specialist in my life that said do it. Everyone was very apprehensive of me doing it. Um, I've got severe lordosis, so when I walk, even when I was ridiculously fit, you know, inside sport fit, I looked like I was pregnant because of the way that I walk, so my back is very arched. So even when I've got no weight on, I look very lordotic. Mm-hmm. So obviously then chuck a baby on that, it was... You know, there was a lot of reasons. Knees, obviously, that they were to get them fixed. If I hadn't had them fixed, I would never have walked again. That's where I was at with it. I've got no cartilage in my knees. I've got blah, blah, blah. So there's a really lot, a lot of reasons why it was going to be... And no one knew what... No, no, Because I'm such a rare creature, there was no doctor that went, oh, I've seen someone else do it. We know what's going to happen <laughs> yeah. here. We can predict this. Yeah, yeah. and I, I have friends with muscle diseases that have had babies and didn't go well for them. They didn't walk, you know, they didn't walk again or whatever. So, yeah, for me, I was, I reckon I was grieving not having children, really, from the age of 33. I really thought that I was never, I was never going to be gutsy enough or brave enough or put my mum and dad through it or, you know, it was too risky because what happens, there's no, I knew that I couldn't stand if it, I had a baby and I couldn't look after him or her. Mm. That wasn't in me. Um, I knew that I wouldn't be happy not being able to look after physically my child. And also I wasn't diagnosed. There was a lot of reasons why I thought there's no way that I'm going to better have a child. Um, and I accidentally fell pregnant. <laughs> the old-fashioned way, too many red wines. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One night. And, um, yeah, I was 38 or 37. And, yeah, accidentally fell pregnant. So... I believe that's the reason that happened was because I had to be forced into doing it because I would never have done it. Mm-hmm. I would never have gone through IVF. Um, I froze my eggs uh, just before I fell pregnant, which is why I reckon I actually fell pregnant. 
even though my doctor says that's not why. I froze them six months before I accidentally fell pregnant. So there you go. I do believe that maybe my <laughs> little few little hormones were raging more than normal. But when I went through that IVF for those two weeks, you know, you had to go through a full... And I didn't really... And no one ever talks about that when people in the media say, women should freeze their eggs if you're 35. No one actually says... Well, I didn't hear anyone say, you got to go through a full round of IVF to do it. No one ever said that. I never had anyone <laughs> no, talk about I that. No, I was so surprised when the doctor said, okay, so you've got to do two weeks of IVF and it's four injections a day and we've got to knock you out and then hopefully we'll get eggs. I... I think that we, we should explain that a bit more to women. And the hormone, like I've, I've not gone through it, but I have um, some friends that have. And just hearing it from the outside, just the the hormone changes, the, oh. the physiological changes, the emotional changes, which, you know, we're only talking about the connection between emotions, mind and body. Yeah. It's all got to have a play. And we don't talk about the impact of that. I think we, we really need to educate women more <laughs> that it's not, you know, we make it sound really easy, like mm. just freeze your eggs, wait to have a child. just, f- And then we think if we freeze them, it's a guarantee. Not a guarantee, but, you know, like, anyway, I learnt a lot in those two weeks to be able to be actually truly empathetic of women that go through IVF because I've got a lot of friends. Weirdly, I reckon I've got more friends that went through IVF than not, I'd say, in my group of friends that couldn't have children naturally. And these were able-bodied women. <laughs> these are my healthy, you mm-hmm. know, healthy and inverted commas women. I found that very challenging those two weeks. My body did not like it. I've never been good with chemicals, ever. Like, I can't even wear normal deodorant. I'm one of those. <laughs> I really am natural. Yeah, I just, my body really does not Reacts. like yeah. um, chemicals. And I knew after doing those two weeks of IVF to get those eggs, and I only got eight, that there was no way that I was going to do IVF. And that was another grief. It was like, oh, that's not going to work for me either. And Because I thought when I, get, when I got diagnosed, what would happen was, obviously, you then get the gene out. You know how when you get diagnosed with a genetic disease, you have to do IVF <coughs> to be able to obviously get rid of that gene. Right. So I thought that I would have a genetic disease, which I don't have. I don't have a genetic disease. Um, I have a very, very rare disease where my mum's my mum didn't have any fluid in her stomach and I didn't move for nine months and I have missing muscles and no one knows why that happened. We have our theories and now I actually think my mother's theories are right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I believe my grandparents were up there looking after me and forced me to have a baby the natural way mm-hmm. because I would never have gotten around to do it and I would never have been happy. Right. I know that. I was, I am such a maternal, maternal person that tried, pretended like I wasn't. Like I was this career woman and I had lots of gay friends and I had a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel and I lived in New Farm and I I did very well at masking it. Pretending. But on the inside. Oh, and I was travelling. Look at me and who needs a baby? You got a fur baby. And like a lot, and I can see it now with other women. I can feel it in them when they talk like that mm-hmm. and I'm very aware of that now and, and I and I feel it for them. I feel it because you have to, right? Yeah. You, you know. There is a grief and there is a loss in, well, in that. We all have things that we have to accept in our lives that we don't want to accept and we have to live with the rest of our lives. There's no way around it. Grief is grief. You've got to sit and you've got to feel it and you've got to experience it and you can't change it. 
So I really did believe and then, like I said, six months later I, I fell naturally pregnant with my darling little boy Kai and I can tell you now I've never shocked so many people ever with one piece of news. <laughs> <laughs> I can All imagine my the pregnancy and family, it was, that goes and also down. <clears throat> the person I fell pregnant to, we'd only been dating for a minute. Right. You know, like it was really early stages. We both yep. weren't wanting to have a baby together. Um, yeah, so there was also, you know, I wasn't in a steady relationship. So when I told people this news, it was double whammy of who? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> How? Yeah. And I didn't think you could have kids, which, again, was something I just threw, threw out there sometimes just to make it easier. I can't have them. Right. Which made sense. Yeah, somebody with a disability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that makes You're sense. You're not going to question that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, the hardest person to tell, obviously, was my mother because, you know, she was just so petrified of this, you know, what the pregnancy would do to my to my body. And, yeah. And I learned a lot through the pregnancy with my mum and dad and the grief they went through and the trauma. I, I, I certainly have a lot more appreciation for them now. I always did have appreciation <laughs> for them. Uh, but I really understood it. I think there's a there is a difference in when you do have, um, you know, if you have a child, then yeah, understanding or just a connection to what was it like for my mum and dad, mm-hmm. regardless of the circumstances. But there is a different connection that you can have. Yeah, with well, your it's interesting because my dad, he's a a man of very few words, typical rocky bloke, you know, that wears he used to wear his white hot rugby league pants when he <laughs> mowed the lawn. <laughs> you know, he's an athlete and very a very kind, um, quiet. Never heard him yell. I've never heard him swear in front of a woman. He's one of those um, beautiful men. And there was a stage I don't even know why, but we're talking about who was going to be in the room with me. And for some reason, I can't remember what it was, but mum said, look, you know, my dad's name's Jeff. Jeff, if, if you have to go in, you'll have to go in. I can't remember why she was saying that, but she was saying that. And dad said, oh, there's no way that I could go in. And this is the first time he'd ever even said that to my mother. In all these years they've been together. And he said, I, I still have nightmares and mm-hmm. about when Carney, you know, when Carney arrived because, you know, it was, as you can imagine, it was yeah. a traumatic birth. Yes. I came out, I was breached, I was upside down, legs over the head, covered in hair. <laughs> I was like a little gorilla. <laughs> <laughs> and mum had to be knocked out and dad had to take over mm. and it was all very touch and go. Yeah, and I looked right. very, like I said, I, look, I don't now, but I did look um, quite, what do they call it? Inverted. I'm thinking, I was trying to think of the right medical term, and I finally found it inverted. Right. Everything was inverted the legs, the, the, the thumbs. And so it was still it's, very, yeah, very well, but you would for never, him. But you would, never have, you wouldn't have guessed that in a million years that dad was still carrying that around. Mm-hmm. And that's why we've got to be so careful again with how we handle disability right from the start. Because we do a lot of damage in our diagnoses, and we do a lot of damage with the words and labels that we do. And look at that, there's my father 39 years later with a successful Paralympic daughter who's still carrying that around. Still holding on to those and words I'm, and, and those I'm, messages. And I'm alive and healthy, so you can only <clears> imagine <throat> the ones that, you know, though they lost their children young. We just have to be very careful with our words. So you're a, you're a single mum now? Yes. And uh, you were saying before, the prompt to me was, you know, one of the stupid things that people say to me as a single mum, <laughs> what are some of the stupid things that you've heard? Oh, look, 
I come from both angles. I cop it from being a single mum, and I'm sure, and but also because I'm a single mum in a wheelchair, I think. It's, the, it's probably the mum in the wheelchair that really attracts the the silly comments. And I've, most of, of us, you know, people in wheelchairs, I think we've all adopted a way around handling people when they do say really random, stupid or boring things to us. We've heard a thousand times like, right. you know, why in the wheelchair? What happened to you? What have you done to yourself? All of those things. All My favourite is when I get high-fived, always in a bar, because obviously it comes with the territory of having a few too many drinks, and then they say, I once broke my little toe <laughs> and I, I was in a wheelchair you know and I know how you feel. And I know what I hated the most is that how everyone talked down to me. I'm like, what, like <laughs> you're doing right now? Or, you know, my mother's, father's, brother's, sister's, uncle's goats in a wheelchair, I know how you feel. They're my... And I fully get what they're trying to say, Mm. but how am I feeling? Yeah. I'm actually feeling fine, mate. I'm in a pub with my mates. I'm not even thinking about the fact that I'm in a wheelchair. Thanks for bringing it up. You know, like as in how you feel. Actually, this is how I've always been. There's no real feeling around this for me. Yeah, yeah. But now now you've attracted that to me and now I'm angry. Yep but not about the disabilities because <laughs> of the way that you're treating me. And I think people don't realise that if we could just cruise around the world and just talk about normal things, our life would drastically improve. And it has nothing to do with lifts or ramps or being cured or all those things able people think we need, funding. It's actually about your attitude towards us. If I could go and apply for a job and get that job because of my qualifications and not have to be the best or the most qualified or mask my disability, that would improve my life drastically. Or if I could get on a plane and not have to fight every single week because I've got batteries in my wheelchair that have a dangerous goods certificate that I've obviously got cleared a thousand times and I'm not riskier, I'm not more trouble, I'm not more of a burden... That would drastically improve my life and would very much minimise my anxiety. Um, what do you... I mean, what are the conversations that you wished um, were had more or what are the ways of kind of approaching it? I mean, some of it is the the uncertainty people don't know and so therefore mm-hmm. risky and so the answer is no mm-hmm. until we get a yes. And I can totally understand that if you're doing that every week, trying to get on a plane, like it, it gets old more than really, once. really quickly. Sometimes more than once. <laughs> you're like, can we not? Yeah. Like I've had this conversation, here's a recording, let's go again. Um, so in that circumstance that it's just not even a problem, totally get it. Let's, yeah. let's come through. Um, but in the, the bar circumstance or the, you know, waiting in a supermarket um, kind of aisle, what are the conversations that, that you would love to see differently, not just for you but for anyone in a wheelchair, in you know, or with a disability? Yeah. I would like people to know the least fascinating thing about me is the fact that I'm in a wheelchair. Just like the least fascinating thing about you is that you walked in today. Yeah. If I went up to you 20 times a day and asked you about walking... You'd find that really strange because <laughs> you don't think about it, do you? No. You don't get out of bed in the morning and go, oh, I can walk and I'm walking. Wow, walking, it's amazing. So inspiring. <laughs> so it's the same as us. We're just actually walking. Yeah. 
just like you, it's a natural act for us. We don't think about it until you bring it up and it's boring or traumatic. For me, it's boring. Mm -hmm. For some people, they ended up in a wheelchair or lost their legs or whatever it is in a very traumatic way. They may have lost their best friend, their mother in that accident, and you're asking them to relive that everywhere they go whilst they're trying to do hard life. You know, life is hard for everyone while we're trying to get from A to B, kids, life, tax, sickness, whatever it is we're going through, <laughs> you're bringing up something that may be the worst day of their entire life. So just remember that. Mm. For me, it's not. It's boring. Yeah. It's also none of your business. I'm also in a rush like everybody else, and it's at least fascinating thing about me. So there's so many more things that are fascinating about me. And being a mother in a wheelchair, um, I would love to film able-bodied mothers answering the questions that I've had to answer, you know, spontaneously. Yeah, can you think of any? Like if I said to you when you were pregnant, oh, how are you going to look after your baby? How are you going to lift your baby into the bath? <gasps> how are you going to run after your baby when, you know, he's a toddler and he runs away from you? Oh, what are you going to do? How are you going to get him out of the cot? Now, imagine if people come up to you and said that to you all day. Yeah. You would probably... It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be pretty. No. If someone questioned how you're going to be a mother, can you imagine? Yeah. How you would feel, the reaction and the anxiety that would create. Oh, the self-doubt or the, I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's an emotional, uncertain experience. Anyway. Because sometimes <laughs> I, I actually didn't know and yeah. I still don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like like all mothers. Yes. And I'm telling you now, unless you're Usain Bolt, you cannot catch a two-year-old. <laughs> My able-bodied friends cannot catch their two-year-olds when they run off. Yeah. So please don't pretend. I'm in an electric wheelchair. Guess what? Faster. I am faster than you. <laughs> picking up the toddlers I as know. you go. <laughs> yeah, I'm helping. Yeah, exactly. Right. I'll get them. I'm picking up your toddlers. That's right. But also, that is so condescending and rude. But that no one thinks that about. And I mean, you can go even further. A lot of my, I don't really get this one, but a lot of my mates in wheelchairs have been. In that people have asked them if they can have sex and um, if they can have children and how. You know, obviously, um, some. Most men in wheelchairs that have had an accident and they've got a spinal cord injury obviously cannot have children, more than likely the normal old-fashioned way like mm -hmm. I did with a few too many red wines. Um, that's none of your business, asking yeah. that question. It's like asking anyone about IVF. People are very sensitive around that. So we just have to give people with disabilities the same courteous. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think just to realise it's not public property. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what we are. We are very much... I don't know what it is about this, but I, I, I find it fascinating that people still find it fascinating because I don't... You see it everywhere. It's everywhere. It's a normal part of life. It's natural. Paralympics has become really big now and I just... I don't know why we still are so fascinated with, with people with disabilities and why we have to know everything about them and why we have to say... Like, you know, people always want to say funny things to me, like, oh, have you got a licence for that? Or I hope you're not drink driving. You know? <laughs> and I'd like, like, and and like I just give them a little fake laugh. Um, and that's fine. That doesn't really, I mean, it's boring and I'm sick of doing a fake laugh, but that's, I don't mind that. I just find it really hard to high five people and, and for them to call me a champion for doing the basics of life. And I don't feel like a champion doing them. I wish I did. What's the stuff that's that fascinates you at the moment? Fascinates me. Mm. Oh, people, people fascinate me. 
Um, I work very much in domestic and family violence. I sit on the Domestic and Family Violence Implementation Council. I was very lucky to be appointed onto the Premier's Council, I don't know how many years ago now it was, three or four years ago, with uh, Dame Quentin Bryce as Mm. the chair, who's one of the most fascinating people I think I've ever encountered. She's had, as we know, a lot of children. Yes. (laughs) And grandchildren. And uh, she's, I don't think she's ever had a hair out of place. Oh, she looks immaculate and uh, amazing. She's immaculate and she's also just so knowledgeable and calm, but fierce. And what prompted you to be involved in? Well, I'm a social worker, so that was always, you know, I I sort of, I've been a clinical social worker with paediatrics. My my master's was in, I did trauma and grief and loss with my uh, master's. And I've got a real fascination around attachment theory and trauma with kids and how we handle that. I, I guess that's why I've talked a lot about how... And trauma is very interesting. It's very relative. We always think about PTSD as you have to be in a war zone to get PTSD. People don't realise that people have PTSD from a diagnosis Mm. (laughs) or a breakup. Yeah. Um, It's all relative. It can be like a breakup for some people can be like a bomb going off, you know. They have the same reactions because the brain is so fascinating. So I'm very fascinated as to how us humans get ourselves and I talk about, and I put myself into this, into these relationships that are so toxic and why we cannot seem to figure out a way to stop domestic and family violence, why every week we have a woman dying and we do so much work. <laughs> I do so much work. My colleagues, do we do so much work in this area to try and raise awareness and improve services and supports and we still have the same stats. It's not really on the improve. And women with women with disabilities are 40% more likely to experience domestic and family violence. Women with intellectual disabilities are 70% more likely to experience some sort of violence in their life and their domestic and family relationships. And scaringly, ooh, 90% of women with intellectual disabilities have indicated they've been raped. Mm-hmm. And I know for a fact people don't know that in Australia. It's not the front page of the news. Uh, People don't believe me when I say that. People find that disgusting. It's difficult for people to understand how that could happen. Yeah, it's almost, I can imagine the reaction is, oh, but surely that's not, oh, that's just a Mm. small study or surely it's not true. And I I work in the area, so I know exactly, I know it is very true. 90%. 90. It's disgusting. And don't forget, those women indicated they were raped. So they've actually had the guts and the the courage to. You know, a lot of it, a lot of a lot of people don't ever admit that they're raped, um, especially if you have an intellectual disability, because nobody believes you anyway. Mm. And unfortunately, with our justice system, which is something I'm really, um, I advocate very strongly about trying to change the law around the fact that people with intellectual disabilities are seen as unreliable witnesses, automatically. You know, that's not right. No. It's not true. We figured out a way to work with children to become reliable witnesses when they talk about sexual violence and incest and um, abuse. So if we've done that, then why can't we do that with people with intellectual disabilities? And I just don't believe, and I have never encountered yet, a person I can't communicate with, unless it's a different language. I'm talking about a person with a disability. 
I have never met a person with a disability I can't communicate with. So I don't believe that we can blanketly say that they're an unreliable witness. I think that's incorrect, unfair, discriminatory, disgusting, and we can't just keep hiding behind that because those perpetrators know that and that's why we have perpetrators, and I know them, I know exactly who they are, they go from one to the other because I know they can get away with it. They'll never, ever be charged. And what's some of the work that you're doing as part of their counsel? Because <laughs> obviously it's pretty tireless work. It's, yeah. it's constant. It is tireless. It's very tireless. It's challenging because it's like we're starting at the beginning with disability. It's sort of like the same with employment of people with disabilities. It feels like we're in the 60s and we're feminists marching. You know, that's what it feels like. Mm-hmm. It really, imagine if you're a female with a disability. It really does feel like we're starting at the beginning, which is fine because at least we're starting. And the Domestic and Family Violence Council in Queensland should be absolutely congratulated and applauded for putting this on the agenda because it's a scary, it's probably not going to have great results. <laughs> we're not going to have great KPIs. <laughs> we're not going to have great outcomes for a while because we are literally starting at the bottom and we are... I mean, A, if the legal system doesn't change, then what's the point of doing an awareness campaign? It's like the chicken before the egg. Mm-hmm. You know, if we get them all the way through and we tell women to start coming forward and that's we don't believed. support them, that's even worse. Mm-hmm. And if we tell women to come forward, then they, they, they lose their children. You know, people with intellectual disabilities consistently and continuously lose their children because they have an intellectual disability and are deemed unfit mothers. So they are not going to come forward, just like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women feel very nervous about coming forward because of the system, because they've constantly been failed by the system. So we've got a long way to go, but I think the conversation needs to start happening. I think that we have to start looking at people with disabilities as a whole as just because I'm missing muscles doesn't mean I'm missing the longing to have a family and to be in a a sexual relationship, um, to I'm missing muscles, I'm not missing ambition. So we've got to think the same thing with intellectual disability. Just because they think a little bit differently to us or speak differently or whatever it is cognitively that's going on, of course they still want to have relationships. I mean, they're humans. Last time I checked. Mm. (laughs) And that's what we're driven to do is have connections, have relationships. So we have to start treating them like that right from the get-go. So when you go into schools and do relationship speech or uh, anything around um, sexual relationships, we have to go into the special units. That's where we've got to start. Don't miss them because we think people with disabilities don't have relationships. They do. And if we don't educate them about how to have healthy ones, of course, that's would be great. Yeah. And then we've got to educate our police. And I'll tell you what, the Queensland police have done incredible work within the, with this because they see it all the time. They're not surprised by these stats. So they're really, really taking on everything we're telling them to do and learning. I'm learning from them. They're learning from me. We have to start identifying disability better. We don't identify disability very well. And we have to start realising that, and this is a very generalised view on domestic and family violence, and I wish it was this easy. It's not, but just let me just be simple for a minute. (laughs) Women often get themselves into these relationships, me included. I've been in a... I was in a I was in a terribly toxic relationship, and 
the reason why I got myself into that relationship with this particular sociopath was that he targeted me like he would target any able-bodied woman and that was that I had low self-esteem at the time. When I was with him, he did a lot of physical things for me like take my rubbish out <laughs> or lift my wheelchair out of the car and people kept saying, isn't he amazing? Look at him. <clears throat> you know, I, I, I thought that I couldn't have kids, obviously, so, oh, look at him, he doesn't care that you can't have kids. So, so it's kind of oh. socially then propped up as well. And this is what, this is what happens with most women <clears throat> that get into domestic and family violence situations. They isolate you, they make you feel amazing, and then everyone around you feeds the beast as well. And at the time I wasn't very um, financial, um, with my career, I was I was probably floundering around too much. I wasn't in the position position I am in now. So all of those factors is why I ended up in the situation I'm in, and that's pretty standard for any woman. I can imagine, you know, if, if some of the the messaging is also, um, yeah, not good enough, or you know, be happy with what I've got. Oh yeah. Um, then that kind of feeds into that yeah. as well. All this must just be what it's like. Oh, yeah. And my favourite question or my favourite statement or question is, is your boyfriend in a wheelchair? Right. Yeah, I've had that a thousand times. So yeah. Yeah. all of those things impact. So how did you get out of that relationship? Like was there a moment where you kind of went, this is not right? right. I mean, he. when I say sociopath, I... I, th- I feel like I've got the authority to say that now that clinically. <laughs> um, it was. It still is troublesome. He's a very stereotypical textbook sociopath. So, you know, um, he stalked me for years. And when I say stalk, I don't mean like for a while that he was following me in the car and in my... Uh, street, so he was physically stalking me. Uh, it was mostly um, he blackmailed me. He knew a lot of things about me from um, completely investigating into me in every possible way. He read every letter that was ever written to me in my life that I didn't know about. He he logged into my emails for the last ten plus years, and my email. I didn't know this because I'm so such a typical Gen X, you know, <laughs> and I'm not very good with details. So my email captured every sent email of my life, which is great in so many ways, right? So he read every single email that was ever sent from me and to me that he could use against me, and there was a bit there. No. <laughs> Let's just say that. Well, now I look back and think, why did I care? And there was actually things about my friends that he blackmailed me about that he would expose. So he, he had these great... He had a lot of information about me that he was going to use to blackmail me and it scared the hell out of me. Mostly my friends. I was so petrified of ruining their lives. You know, of course, I'm a very... I'm one of those people that... I'm a social worker, so, you know, I think about everyone else. And um, he had everything. Financially, he'd screwed me over really well. Uh, I didn't give him access to my accounts. I wasn't that silly, but... Other things he'd done really well, like tax and accounts and bills and so many things he didn't pay. I didn't know that he didn't pay. He was so... He just he mustn't have slept. He just constantly... The, the amount of work that went into what he did to me was diabolical. It was just amazing what he'd done. And to this day, I still... We still I could write a book about it. He was that good. 
You know, I met his mother who wasn't actually his mother. You know, he right. had, it was just, there was a lot of layers to this yeah. and yeah, he had yeah, a lot yeah. of actors or who knows how he had all these people in his life, but he was living a double life and to get out of it was very challenging in every possible way. Did you have support? Yeah, look, I just had to eventually just lay it. Well, I didn't know to the extent that it, it was, luckily, until I got out of it. A lot of things came to light. I had to cancel a wedding. It was very embarrassing. A lot of shame. I, I really haven't spoken about it, you know. Mostly because I was scared of him, and I still am a bit scared about talking about it because that's what they like, right? Mm-hmm. That's yep. all he wanted from me was contact. And that's why I never spoke to him again after I broke up with him because that's all he wanted. Right. That's why he wanted me to take him to court because he wanted to see me. You know how sociopaths work. They just, they'll do anything to get your attention. Not the win. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So to this day, he still hasn't completely gone away. Um, that's for sure. I'm not in danger um, at all, but he's hes always lurking, but he's had many, many, many me's since me. He literally goes from moment to moment from the day of the breakup to the next day. It's, he is, and he never breaks the law. He's very careful with what he does. He's, he's that intelligent. But, yeah, I know a lot of the women. He's done it too since. They've contacted me because mm-hmm. I'm now a part of the lie, of course. And, yeah, so it, I... So I can see it's obviously still, yeah. Yeah, it's it still not... still has a big impact oh. and obviously it drives a lot of the work that you do um, currently and you've rebuilt <laughs> <laughs> yourself and... Um, you know, yeah, what's what's kind of next for you? If there is someone listening who kind of maybe tunes into some of this or is in a situation when they go, hey, I need to move on out as well, what advice or what do you think you might have listened to <laughs> back then, which is not always easy? <laughs> no. Look, even with the women that I work with now that are in really scary physically... You know, the thing about domestic and family violence, we've got to understand, and we should have learned this from Rosie Batty, is that it doesn't look the way we think it should look. You know, if you read Rosie Batty's book, there wasn't a lot of physical violence until, unfortunately, Mm. he killed his own son. And... I'll, we see that a lot with these women that end up murdered by their partner or ex-partner is that there's so many red flags, but they're not the black eye. It's social media stalking. It's the financial abuse. It's the isolation. It's the verbal, emotional abuse that goes with it. And now we've made a lot of that illegal. Mm-hmm. So then there's now a social media law. Yay, because that was something that, you know, it's the new stalking, right? You don't have yes. to actually stalk physically anymore. You can just stalk them from behind a commu- computer screen. So that's illegal. Now it stands up in, law, in, in court of law. Um, you know, we didn't even have strangulation <laughs> law. It wasn't even illegal to strangle your partner <laughs> until just recently. You know, d- DVOs didn't measure up across the border. You know, you go from Kingscliff to to cool and gather and didn't have a DBO anymore. So those things, now it's a national DBO. So if you go to Melbourne and your DBO's in Brisbane, then it's still a DBO. What could I tell women? Look, the problem with this work is that unfortunately sometimes, especially when you've got kids with the, the, the man in question or the female in question that's doing it, is that the alternative is not often appealing. 
you know, it's not like magically you leave and mm. everything's great okay. and you're okay and you're safe. That's not the case. It's hard to keep these women safe. They often have to go into a shelter or a place that it's very... Um, it's not their home, you know. It's not a nice place. I mean, they're not set up and they, they're away from their family or they had to change their job or... It's, it's such a long road. Yeah. So it isn't... These women need so much support for such a long period of time. It's not a quick fix to keep them safe. We really have to start talking to, them, to, to men. You know, I know my son will be very much educated about how to treat women. Mm-hmm and they're not your property, and we've really got to make sure that the awareness is around, it is really directed toward the men. But what would, what would I have listened to back then? I can do better. There is a way out of the financial hole that I was in um, from him. <laughs> I really thought that, and he kept, that, that, was, that was the carrot. I'll do this. I'll get you out. I we'll do this. We'll be okay. Um, and I was just so much. There's so much shame in this because, and I was one of those people that judged women. They got themselves into these positions. I didn't know I judged them. Mm-hmm. I, I certainly wasn't telling people that I judged them. Of course, um, that's not something that goes well at a dinner table. No. But, <laughs> <laughs> but people do say. People still say to me, "Oh, he's not stalking you." When I'd say about you know, what he was doing social media-wise or email or whatever. I think, yeah, you know, I guess what's we, coming to we, mind is, you know, almost even tying what you were saying, like it's just about stop coming to assumptions, stop yeah. thinking you know, just be curious and ask people. <laughs> like even right. similar to what you were saying around some of the stupid things around being in a wheelchair or a disability, but, um, but even the gravitas around domestic and family violence, it's just... Be present. Just yeah. ask questions. Get curious. Be empathetic. And, and we always think it happens to people <laughs> that, again, are lesser than. So low socioeconomic, you know, in the country town. Or we have this idea about where it happens. Mm-hmm. We don't think it happens to educated, white, successful women living in New Farm. And I think I was so embarrassed. I was so embarrassed that I had to be a person with a disability, you know, with another breakup and a cancelled wedding because there was so much, um, there was so much celebration when I got engaged, you know, more than normal, I think. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I was, oh, how am I going to tell everyone? <laughs> and then how was I going to, I didn't want to be this stereotype. I hate, and I hate this about myself because <laughs> it's ridiculous to even think like that. But I didn't want to be the stereotype. I didn't want to be the the single woman in a wheelchair that didn't have children. And funnily enough, uh, I am a single mother in a wheelchair and I truly believe that sometimes my life is easier than my friends that are married. Why not say that? You all think it's hard. Maybe it's not. <laughs> Maybe I've got to figure it out. Get the whole bed to yourself. Look, look, I, no, I, I still, still, still co-sleep. Um, but I don't know. I just, I, I don't want to have the shame of it anymore. Mm. Like, I didn't choose to be a single mother. I certainly wished that I had a beautiful, loving partner, which I believe I will have mm. one day. I, like, I'm, I'm not 40 yet. I've got plenty more years to live. And I do believe in love, even though I haven't had the best um, 
<laughs> the best luck. But I know now why I attracted him. And that you're worth in deserving. Yeah, you. and also I think now that I've had a child, I even feel more, um, I feel, I don't know, I feel like now I'll be looking for a man for the right reasons. I think I was sort of looking for a man that didn't care if we didn't have kids and we could adopt and I was just all over the place with my feelings around it. And now that that's happened for me, I feel very relaxed and content and I know it will happen when I'm when I'm ready. But at the same time, I think the older we get, the more we realise that relationships aren't in our control. And Comes back to that control <laughs> thing, right? Not, Things aren't in our control. You, you know, be present where you are. Look, yeah, exactly. You can do all the right things and, you know, it doesn't work and who knows. I think you just got to find happiness in other things. And right now, I can't even imagine right now my life any other way. I'm just so, I just love being around Kai and the work that I'm doing is really um, fulfilling. I don't feel like I do it enough. I feel like, <laughs> but at the same time, I don't want to miss out stuff with Kai. So I'm really present with him. And I'm lucky that I got myself into the situation with my career before I had him because now I'm in a career, of course, in domestic and family violence and Department of Communities where they are very, very accepting of diversity and they're very, very um, supportive of a single mother. So I found myself in a, a career that they get it when I ring up right. and say, my kid's sick. Yeah. They're like, bring him. Okay. We'll figure it out. Yeah, that's You know, beautiful. geez, I'm in a lucky position. Yeah. I look at some women and think, oh, how do you do it? <laughs> <laughs> I want to come full circle. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When I say that term to you, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? Yeah, it's funny. I think my whole life I've tried to be the best at everything to overcompensate for all my um, missing muscles. <laughs> Um, so probably for me, a standout life is not to stand. No, <laughs> I get the irony of. <laughs> so I think, I, I, I really and truly feel very blessed that I've spent my whole life being able to to be chosen to be a speaker, to be looked at as this amazing Paralympic swimmer, you know, the best in the world. No. I've had this incredible life where I had so many accolades. I remember, you know, when I was on the front page of Inside Sport in a bikini, the only person ever in a wheelchair back then to ever do that sort of stuff and not show a wheelchair and show that disability can be sexy and disability doesn't discriminate, you know. The hottest people I know are in a wheelchair or uh, have a disability. So I think with all of that stuff, I've experienced all of those things and realised it didn't make me happy. (laughs) <laughs> so it's a beautiful position to be in because I did all that and realised, hang on a minute, that didn't make me happy. And then I used to, I remember I used to always start every conversation with I was a Paralympian, you know, because it was like my shield. And what I realise now is that my shield is the fact that I chose my own label. And when you have a disability, you're, you're always labelled. doesn't matter what you do, you can't control that. That's just the way it is. I cannot control people out there, what they're going to say to me, but I can control how I react to it, but more importantly, how I digest it. So I hope that one day that all of these things that we're talking about will will change people's attitudes about disability. But I know now that my armour and my shield is the fact that I found something I was good at. And I believe that as humans, we need to, we need to help other humans find what they're good at. 
and we need to start nodding our heads at their crazy, ridiculous dreams, even if we think they can't do it because of X, Y, Z. Because if one thing that I've learned from Paralympics is that people without arms choose to be swimmers. They could choose to be runners. <laughs> that would make more sense. Somebody like me with a muscle wasting disease, all I wanted to do my whole life was be an athlete. And I chose to do the most physical thing you could ever do in your life. So we have to, as humans, start to, to really and truly, if we don't know what to say to someone, just nod your head and agree. Because look around, you know, every single person that we see that is successful doesn't make any sense. If you really look at it, who knows why? And also, standing out to me was probably quite damaging my whole life. Even though I was, you know, I am successful and da 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 I think <laughs> that I finally found my happiness by being good at being empathetic and being good at the work that I do with my social work and speaking and connecting with people and helping them hopefully connect and engage with really dark stuff about life. You know, I figured out a way to do that in a very hard way and I didn't ever want to be a social work case. I am a social work <laughs> case. I'm a single woman with a disability that had a baby. I never thought that would happen to me and I'm not ashamed about it anymore. I'm I'm bloody proud that I did it and I'm really, I'm really, 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 really aware of how much shame can destroy people way more than missing muscles or disability and, and things like that. So I guess if I told anything to my future self way back when I was 16, is that you're good enough just the way you are? You don't have to be the best at everything and... I wish that I told myself back then that I was enough, just the way, yeah, I was worthy enough. You know, even when I was the front cover of Inside Sport, I never felt beautiful. I never felt hot, sexy. Everyone kept telling me that I was, but I didn't believe it because of all those years of, of not being asked to dance the high school dance. What a shame. You know, so I, I now feel sexy and I've got a few kilos on. I'm definitely not in, in Inside Sport um, <laughs> shape right now. But I've, I've absolutely learnt to be enough with all of that and not being the centre of attention or, you know, a famous Paralympian anymore. So I'm glad I finally got here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you did too. Thank you so much for sharing. It's such a powerful story and some beautiful insights. Thank oh, you, Carly. Thanks for having me. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.